The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to The Things We All Carry. This week has been a trying week. Well, the last few weeks have been trying. Uh, I kind of went over it a little bit last week in my intro, discussing my mom's situation, how she's at the tail end of a of a fight with cancer. Uh, she's been in hospice for quite a while, and, and we all know that, <clears throat> excuse me, we all know that end is near, and we're preparing for that. And I'm in a little better place today when I, when I think about it, and I think about her, and I think about the visit I had with her. Um, it was productive. It was heart-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching. There was some laughter. There was some joy. Uh, it was tantamount to a goodbye. And it's hard to wrap your head around that. It's hard for me to, to accept that that would be a goodbye. I'm going to try and get back there as, as often as possible to see her before she does die. But it, it was a chance for me to tell her what I thought of her, what I've always thought of her, how much I respect her, how much I love her. And how much she's done for me and uh, how she's prepared me for this world. And it's funny for me to say sitting here at 54 years old uh, that, that my mom's prepared me for the world. But it's been a battle and she, it's, uh, she's done her part. And, and I'm proud to have had her as, as a mother, as a friend, as a confidant. And uh, it does. It, it, it scares me to wonder what life will be like without her. But I, at least I know now that when the inevitable comes, she knows that I love her and she knows that I consider her my hero. And we are very clear on where we stand with each other. And it was, it was a, it was a good visit with her. And, um, I'm not at peace with her, with her ultimate, with the ultimate outcome with her dying, but I'm, I'm, I'm more at peace with, with uh, knowing that she knows how I feel about her. You know, there's been a, there's been a change in the way that I do these intros and just recently. I mean, this is only week two of it, so I'm kind of rambling a little bit, and I apologize. Uh, one of the things I've started doing with guests is asking about music. What's the last song they listen to? And uh, just to introduce people to music, uh, introduce myself to new music, um, to add that to the book selection and the everyday carry. So uh, I kind of want to quote from a, uh, a performer that I was turned on to by a, a good friend of mine. And he's, uh, he's out in Ohio now. His name is Mark Belanda. And, and you can find him on Instagram um, at Fooch for Mayor. And uh, he's, he's, he's one of his, an original. Let's put it that way. He's, he's one of my favorite people in the world. And uh, he's one that's definitely checked in along this whole journey and, and tried to keep me sane. So I appreciate it. Um, the artist he introduced me to is a guy named Stephen Wilson Jr. And uh, a song he has is called Werewolf. And the lyric that was on my mind today starts with and i've square danced with demons and they've stepped on my feet i ain't up here saying i made peace with the beast but i threw him in a cage the best that i could and i know he's still there i'm no longer scared of the werewolf it's a it's a telling lyric um i think that as first responders we all dance with some demons and they definitely step on our feet and uh we have to find our way to make peace with them um my mom's been sick for, for four plus years and, and I've known what the ultimate outcome is going to be. And uh, I think I'm just now starting to make 
peace with that beast. Um, I know he's there. I know it's there. I know it's not going anywhere, but I've kind of, I'm no, I'm not scared of it now. Um, I don't want to lose her, but I know that her suffering will be, will, will, will be gone once that happens. I'm not a religious person. I'm not going to get into what happens to a spirit or a body after we die. Um, matter of fact, my mom and I even talked about that. Um, so it was a very, a very involved conversation that we had one-on-one and, uh, I appreciate her listening to me, entertaining some of my words and and thoughts. Um, and I, I appreciate you guys tuning in every week for the same reason to, to listen to these stories and and support each other. Um, it's, it's been an amazing ride for the last, I don't know, what is it? 18 months that I've been doing this show. I've learned a lot. I've made a lot of mistakes. Well, shit, that's, that's my entire life. I've learned a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes. That should be on my gravestone whenever I go. Uh, there are people out there that hate me. There are people out there that might love me. And then there might be some in the middle, but I think there's a lot on either side of that spectrum. Um, I'm just trying to live life the best I can. I'm trying to be me. I'm trying to, to not make mistakes and I'm trying to make amends for the mistakes I make. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to be scared of those demons anymore. I'm going to make peace with those beasts that I'm carrying. Um, they're going to still be there, but I have my ways to deal with them. And I have my, my, uh, I have my future to look forward to. That being said, welcome to episode 88 of the things we all carry. This week, uh, I'm welcoming a guy named Kevin Easley. Kevin is out of San Diego City. He's been he's been a firefighter for 30 plus years. He's coming to the end of a career, and I guess you could say an illustrious career because he's done a lot of stuff in his in his career. He's seen a lot of things. He's been through a number of traumatic events. And, uh, he's had victories and he, and he's had, he's had losses quite frankly, and he has learned how to deal with both of those. He's learned how to almost remake himself in some ways. He's been a captain on a heavy rescue in San Diego city for the majority of his career. Um, he's, he's a special operations guy through and through. And, uh, we talked for about two hours and it was a, it was one of those conversations where I think we both just got lost in it. And, uh, we probably could have talked for a little bit longer, but I had taken up enough of his time and, and, uh, maybe he'd come back on and, and share some more. But, uh, so without further ado, I will, uh, let, I will step aside and, and let Kevin start telling his story. As always, I appreciate all the support. I appreciate every, every listener, every follower, every time you reach out to tell me that you've listened or that a show has impacted you. Uh, it just blows me away and I appreciate it to no end. You guys get out there, enjoy your day, and uh, go do something for yourselves. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry, or email my story at thethingsweallcarry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. I'll let you handle it from there and then we'll, we'll just pick it up. Like I said, just have that conversation. Yep. All right. So welcome back to the things we all carry today. I am speaking with Kevin. Kevin Easley is from California, San Diego area. Correct, sir. Yes, sir. And, uh, he's, he's, well, it's morning there. So he's agreed to spend some time this morning with us and kind of tell his story and, and, and get a message out there. And, uh, you know, we, he and I talked 
What's it been, Kevin? Uh, about a month ago? Yeah, yeah. What? Yeah, we spoke in person about a month ago. Got to know each other a little bit. Um, I think we've been playing tag on this concept for well over a year. I think. Been, I think we uh, have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been pretty much a uh, social media recluse uh, for about about a year and a half um, because of an injury I had at work and what my platform is, what what my platform has become. It was never intended to be, but it became you know, an athletic site and, uh, you know, with a, a work injury, it's kind of hard to be exposed that way. So, so. tell where, where, where are you working now and what, what's your, what's your position? So, um, my current employment is I work with San Diego city fire department, you know, one of the, one of the bigger agencies on the West coast. Um, it's a uh, big city that believes it's a small town still right here on the most southwestern point of California. Um, and I've been with San Diego City since 1997. I started my fire service career in 1992. Um, one of those journeymen that, you know, wanted to go to the show and always upgraded fire departments. And, and then I got to, you know, San Diego City and they offered all the programs I wanted to be involved in. And, uh, you know, jumped in real early, right around the time uh, the war on terror started. We had a huge expansion of our special operations division and got a lot of training through that and I've dabbled in many branches. And the last decade I've spent uh, in what I consider to be one of the top positions in any fire department, which is being a captain in, in the heavy rescue Um uh, I think being a captain on a heavy rescue, responding to all incidents of significance is probably the cream of the crop position that most people are pursuing in their career. Most people uh, in the fire service tend to want to, I say most, uh, and I believe it to be true that the majority of people will get in the fire service because they want to make other people's uh, bad days better. And most of those bad days are significant incidents and the way to go to the most significant incidents in any major city is to ride on the rescue. Um, you go to every greater alarm fire, you go to every vehicle rescue, you go to every special service call that um, the amazing fire department that you work for can't figure out without specialized technicians, right. tools, equipment, and training. So um, I've, I've had the luxury of the last decade of riding in that officer's seat on uh, what we call rescue two. Um, our department calls it a a new SAR, they've called it that for probably six years now. But in, internally, we refuse to call it new SAR. I've, I've never been on an urban search and rescue mission inside the city of San Diego. So, so before we get too far down into it, did you grow up in, in San Diego? I grew up in San Diego. I wasn't born here. Uh, I, I was born back in Michigan. Um, nineteen sixty nine. You know, last century. Um, a lot of decades ago, uh, you know, I was, uh, I'm, I'm 54 years old. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was born in, in the Michigan area and, uh, spent some time moving between places all over Michigan, uh, Grand Rapids, Detroit, um, Ferndale, which is, you know, a suburb of Detroit. Uh, my, my parents, uh, my, my dad was in school when he had me and, uh, so like we, we didn't, you know, we're 
living off their parents a lot. And my dad's dad had died when he was young. So we lived, you know, for a short time with his mom right there in, in Detroit. And, um, we came out here in, into San Diego in 1975 is when 1975, I remember the, the bicentennial 4th of July being out here for that. So it was, it was winter 75, spring of 76 that we actually made it to California. And uh, I've been roughly in the same place ever since went away to school, you know, moved out at, moved out of home at 17 years old and decided to find my way through some education and made my way back. So what was growing up like for you? Is it a stable house or, or what would you, what'd you have going on? Oh, fuck no. Um, I'm a broken soul right from the beginning. Um, we, it, it, you know, it's funny, you know, I, I know we're talking about, you know, the things we all carry and has to do with post-traumatic stress. And probably my first post-traumatic stress was, you know, getting real personal here. And, uh, you know, my parents are both alive. I, I don't think they will ever know that I recorded this, but you know, air, I, I don't believe in airing dirty laundry, but I'm just going to put it out there. I was eight or nine years old. My parents had an unstable, horrible relationship. Neither one of them really knew how to be a wife or, uh, or a husband. And, uh, neither one of them were really good parents as far as, uh, doing what they were supposed to do. They were, their backgrounds, I'm not even going to get into their backgrounds, but there, there was a lot of dysfunction they taught us as kids. But I remember going to uh, the local county fair, which was at the Del Mar Fairgrounds here in, in the county. And uh, right near the racetrack, my parents got in a public argument of who, who had an affair with who. And they decided to discuss that. And I was horrified. And to this day, you know, like 54 years old, I, I make every intention to not go to the Del Mar Fair. And I was, uh, of my four kids, I think only maybe two of them have actually been there, and I'm not sure it's been. Um, it's just something I, I, I don't pursue. Just, uh, you know, it, it traumatized me, and um, but it, it did make me a better man. Um, you know, that, that whole concept of integrity and loyalty uh, came out of that because that, you know, that, that, that uh, selfish argument that they had through a fucking frank fragmentation grenade right into my life and my family destroyed right at that point um or what my concept was of a healthy family it, it went away and uh, i ended up uh being raised by a single father who had been in school and uh, pursuing year he had first uh, pursued engineering school failed out of engineering school made his way through miraculously through medical school and became a pretty good doctor uh but he built that practice while he was raising me. And so I was a single latchkey kid, you know, that had moved out with him and I was always in trouble. I was always in trouble because I was never supervised and I was doing a lot of stupid shit. You know, got arrested as a kid and fought as a kid. And, you know, it, a lot of stuff I'm not embarrassed or not, not, not proud of, very embarrassed of, of, of my past and, you know, what I did to myself and the things I did to others are, um, very much, um, uh, you know, trying to raise myself and figure out life. And, um, the, the funny thing was my dad had so little time for me. He got me involved in boy scouts and, uh, <laughs> as funny as that sounds, I ended up in this boy scout troop that, uh, 
honestly, um, I, I wouldn't say they, they traumatized me in any way, but it was an abnormal environment. Um, and when people think of Boy Scouts nowadays, they think of like, oh, you know, nerds and, you know, um, sexual molestation and all this stuff. But uh, this, this trip I was involved in was run by a San Diego City vice cop. And imagine someone that was overweight in the, in the 80s and was bald but had long hair and looked like a Harley Davidson uh, motorcycle gang. Uh, guy, uh, a held angel. And cause that was the crowd that he had to infiltrate all the time. So that was his look. You know, he, he, he you know, he was un always unshaven. He was, uh, had, he had long, dirty hair, always wore like leather vests and stuff. Well, this was our scout leader. And in his time, he took us out to the desert and the forests and he, he gave us amazing trips and uh, opportunities, but he let us run ourselves and it ended up being very lords of the fly or is that right? The Lord, Lord, yeah. of, the, Lord of the flies. Yeah. Lord, Lord of the flies. Of, yeah. That's the name yeah, of that yeah. book. And, uh, you know, uh, almost everybody in that, in that troop that survived initiation and, and selection, um, went on to be very successful, but we, as kids, you know, we weeded out weakness at, at a very early age. And, um, we made each other stronger, but if people couldn't hang, if they were there for the wrong reasons, and uh, I, I hate to say it, it's, it's almost like we were like a little criminal gang that he had created uh, out of his mentality of living in that vice life. Um, and unfortunately, that was a huge carryover in my career as well. Um, I shouldn't say unfortunately; it's 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 been that way all along. I think. Uh, I think some of that mindset actually makes some of the best special operations firefighters, you know, being able to think outside the box and seeing adversity as a challenge and looking at things of like, well, no one else is going to do it. I'm going to do it. I have the balls to do it. I'm going to go do it. And so some of the best uh, rescue firefighters I ever had are the people that have been made outside of that mold where, you know, if they'd taken a different turn in life, they could have been a really good criminal. Yeah. You know, you say that, that that's a benefit and, and then it, it obviously is, but do you, th and I mean, we're going to get into more of that story. And I think, I think I know the answer, but I want to, I want to kind of hear how you would frame it. Do you think that it has also been a hindrance though, in, in dealing with some of that stuff? Absolutely. I, I think there are things that have come out of that, that have definitely put a glass ceiling on myself. Um, and I can sit here and justify it any way I want that like, oh, I'm, I'm in the position I always want to be, but I'm definitely not a person that, you know, the brass, the administration, um, whatever you want to call them, that, uh, they don't want me past this level. You know, they, they, they would seem, see me as a person that brings more problems, um, than, uh, it's worth. And I, and that's, that's a realization I've come to have in the last five years of my life. You know, I, um, that there are a lot of people in administrative positions that, um, has spent a lot of their time in administrative positions and they're looking for administrative teammates. Hmm. And with that being said, uh, you, you know, there, I think every department has this where they have administrators and operators and every once in a while there's, uh, 
a hybrid employee that can be an operator and an administrator, and they can do it really well, or they can be an administration person at a very low level. Um, I was very successful in that running the training program for the technical rescue team. And, but at the same time, uh, definitely rub people wrong ways a lot of times, you know, because of, uh, the social skills that came out of that world. Um, my social skills are not the greatest. I, I know that to be true. It's, and, and it, and something as I've aged, I've worked to really change, uh, I, you know, to be a better version of myself, a more Christ-like version of myself, uh, someone that has more patience, benevolence, um, understanding, empathy. Empathy is a huge word that I really didn't have for a very long time. Uh, so, uh, yes, I, I do believe that the, those, uh, those rough beginnings, um, of life make better operators, but it is not conducive to it being an administrator at, at all. And you talked about, you know, you, you growing up and then, and then finding your way to, to, to go to school somewhere and kind of do it on your own. Correct. Yeah. So where yeah, did, where I, did you, had, where did you go to school? Well. Um, it's a funny story, actually. Um, the, uh, I had, I was in, I, I graduated high school in 1987. I was trying to join the military and my dad was 100% against it. And I was 17 years old and he would not emancipate me to sign the papers. And I had gone to the recruiters here and, you know, just like every little small town. Um, I grew up in the rural, uh, area like farm ranch area of a little town in East San Diego called El Cajon. And so I'd gone to the recruiters on my own and yeah, I, I had looked for, um, the, the Green Beret contract and mm -hmm. one of my friends was doing it. One of the friends I was graduating with was doing it. And, you know, I had this army recruiter telling me everything I wanted to hear, whether it was true or not. And <laughs> they're, and, they're uh, good at that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It probably wasn't going to be true. And, uh, my dad would not sign uh, away my rights. And he said, I will do it if you apply for three schools and with the deal that like, if you get in, you have to go and keep your word. Hmm. So I applied for, you know, being the, the fuck you type of kid and not wanting to do it. And Brad, you got to understand, like I, I graduated barely over at 2.0 in high school. Um, I was not the typical student. Um, I was ditching school to go surf, ditching school to do other things. Um, I did play sports, but my senior year I was academically ineligible and that really messed things up. Um, so I, I, like every other kid, you know, we took the SAT. I scored very high on the SAT, abnormally high. And so I applied for USC thinking like, well, if he's going to have to pay for it, you know, he'll have to pay a lot of money. Yeah, shoot for the moon kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I, I applied for university of Arizona because I had like eight friends from high school that were going there. And then I actually had any sponsorship to apply for the Naval Academy, even though my grades were dog crab. So the one that actually got back to me right away and I got in was University of Arizona. 
And I got in as a late enrollment and my dad packed my shit up and drove me over there. And literally he, uh, got me near campus on a day that after we'd stayed in the hotel and he dropped me off and he said, go figure it out, hmm. find a roommate, get your classes. Here's a hundred bucks. Don't call me until you have a place to live, a roommate, and you're in your classes. And he left. And, uh, that was a big day in growing up. Yeah. That, that'll force you to, to grow a little bit pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I did, I, you know, I, I got in classes and, and, uh, you know, I, I ended up, I did end up graduating in four and a half years. I had to work my way through. Um, I had a job the whole time through and, um, that's a whole, whole nother story. So you, you graduate with what degree? <laughs> Generally nothing uh, is what <laughs> I've called it over my life. I, I, I wavered back and forth because I had no direction and I never really understood why I was there. There was nothing that interested me enough to want to pursue it as a profession. And, uh, so the military was still pulling on me. And so, I, you know, uh, I, I started off with engineering and, um, my, my first semester, I was doing really well with all my science education. For the first time in my life, I was actually a good student and applying myself. And, uh, then I found fraternities and, um, uh, joined a fraternity, my, my spring semester of, of, uh, my freshman year and was on my way home from one of those events on a mountain bike to the apartment that I was living in off campus. And I got blasted by a car and ended up in the hospital, um, had a traumatic brain injury and almost, you know, you know, had to have a hole drilled in my head. And, um, I almost failed out of school that semester. Uh, and then I obviously failed the fraternity pledge ship and didn't go back to it. Ended up a year later joining another fraternity, <clears throat> even though that one had offered me to come back. Um, and, and, uh, that was something that I was always drawn to was, you know, the, the team environment. And, um, so I ended up playing water polo at that school, um, cause I was trying to still go military. And so I thought, well, I better stay in shape. Right. So, so I joined the water polo team. It was a club team that competed at the division one level. Um, so we would travel and, you know, play against air force, USC, you know, long beach state, San Diego state, all these different programs out West. And, you know, I, I did well in that stayed in shape and then I was about to graduate and it, you know, I had basically found out that I was not going to do well in the engineering program. So I just started studying like a, I went to the counselor, they steered me down this path of this thing called general studies. <laughs> and, uh. They said, yeah, you can get out of here in four and a half years, you know, with where you are after almost failing out. And, you know, when it was on my dime and I was working, you know, to do it and trying to do all these other things and have a life, I thought it was like good just to get out, just get, finish something, get done and, um, start working towards, uh, possibly going to an officer candidate school for the military. And so I was on the path again for that to go to the military and it was, December of, I want to say 91 and, and, uh, had just found out that everything I had applied for, for the military, they were like, yeah, um, we just kicked the shit out of Iraq and like, 
X number of days. And, you know, the Navy was where I was applying for was, um, they said they were going from a 600 ship Navy to a 200 ship Navy. And so, uh, I didn't fit the bill for coming in there. Matter of fact, they were canceling a lot of contracts coming out of the Academy and ROTC and OCS. Yeah, so I was kind of like at a loss. Massive downsizing at that time. It was a massive downsizing, you know, like the, the Reagan military was going through a huge drawdown after, I think at the time, you know, like very similar to what's going on right now that you, you have this big, scary monster on the other side of the world. I remember I ran in Iraq during the eighties had been in this like 15 year war where no mm -hmm. one made any progress no. and they had, they had talked about it and said, oh, we're going to go invade Iraq. Everyone thought, well, that's you know, they're battle hardened and they've been fighting for 10 to 15 years and they're the sixth largest standing army in the world. Well, yeah. I mean, it lasted like what, three weeks of ground contact right. and they were, com they completely fell, you know, and you know, like obviously Reagan had done something right building up, you know, the world's greatest military power that the world had ever seen. And, you know, after they realized like, wow, we'd put a, invested a lot of money in, into this machine, but just, destroyed number six in a matter of three weeks. Maybe we don't need 600 ship Navy and, you know, there, however many fighter wings and army regiments and brigades, combat brigades that they had. So they downsized and, and with that, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, uh, I was sitting on the sun deck of the fraternity house, drinking a beer and, and our fraternity house across the street caught on fire. And I saw <laughs> Tucson fire department show up, put it out. And I thought, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that, it, I was like, that's pretty cool. I'll, I'll, when I get out of here, I'm going to go figure out how to do that. And I did. Um, I was fortunate. I had, uh, my sister had been dating a guy that was in a small department in San Diego County and she ended up marrying him, having a couple of kids with him. And, you know, they're, they're still together to this day. And he did his 30 years and he coached me up on how to win an interview. And I went out, uh, very first interview I ever did, I got hired and I got hired without being an EMT, um, no, no specialty training at all. Um, I was told later that the reason I got hired was because I had going back and tying it all back. Uh, my interview had nothing on it. You know, I had like sports captain, graduate, you know, college, blah, 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 but I didn't have anything. But the thing that stood out to the panel was I had finished and made it to Eagle Scout. Hmm. And they thought like, you know, if a kid can do that when he's young, then he's going to fit into this military organization. He's going to finish whatever assignments we give him. And, you know, I had no haz hazardous materials awareness training yet. I had never been to EMT school and I spent my first six months as a firefighter in 92, not even being an EMT. I was just a straight up knuckle dragon hose monkey. That's all I did. And so that's 92 and, and, and then... What kind of, what size department is that that you start with? I was hired by the one station's lowest paid fire department in the state of California. And, you know, hold on to your socks, kids, because if you are listening, thinking that firefighting is a lucrative career, my first <laughs> year, I made less than $13,000 in 1992. And I had to have two other jobs to make ends meet and they were not fun jobs. You know, they, they were, uh, my family makes fun of it all the time. Uh, I sold women's shoes 
at, at, at a department <laughs> store called Nordstrom. Yeah. And I made more money doing that than I did doing firefighting. And, uh, but yeah, and uh, I made $13,000 a year. So that's, you know, less than, you know, what was that? It was that less than $1,100 a month, you know? So every, you know, people are making that in more than that in one shift of overtime. Now. I was going to say, I just, I just Googled it just to see what, what in today's value it would be. And it's roughly $29,000 in today's value. Yeah. That's, uh, it, it, it was, it was tough. Yeah. It was very, very Especially tough. considering you're, you're, you're living in California. Now the cost of living isn't as high in 92 as it is in 2023, but it's still up there. Yeah. Yeah. I think California has always been, um, an expensive place to live. And then there's also the governments out here, like I said earlier about the, you know, big city with the small town mentality, every industry out here is paid less, uh, because they, they consider it, oh, it's the sunshine tax. Yeah. You know, because, pe because people live, you know, because you have good weather, you should make less money, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know. So it takes you how many years again? So you, you go, I forget now, and I apologize. How many years before you get to San Diego then? Um, well, I hopped around in a few more small departments. Mm -hmm. uh, and the department that originally hired me went through a consolidation, became a two-station department. Okay. Big expansion. And hey, if, that, if you say it doubled in size, it sounds much more impressive, by the way. It doubled in size. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, with that, I became an engineer. And okay. As an engineer, I was making $18,000 a year. And it was it was really fast promotion, um, but it was a financial thing. And, uh, and I remember one of my good friends, he was also an engineer forced to be a captain because no one wanted to be a captain there because everyone wanted out mm -hmm. and no one wanted to tr try to go to an uh, interview for a, a large agency, where it's LA city, LA County, um, Orange County or San Diego. I don't even think Orange County existed at the time. I think they were going bankrupt at the time, uh, but nobody wanted to go to those interviews and say, well, I'm a captain at this small department. And then people would be like, well, why would you want to leave being a captain right. up here and be a boot? So I remember this one time I was 25 or 26 years old. Uh, and we were driving down the main street of the city of El Cajon and he was an engineer and I was an engineer. I was driving for him and he was OCAing as a captain. I looked at him and I said, Hey man, and, and, uh, do you, do you realize these people looking around think like we're grownups, you know, and, <laughs> And like, we're in charge and we can solve any problem. They, do, do you think they even realize that we're just a couple punk kids that, you know, are just trying to get out of here and go learn from somebody? Um, and then uh, we made a, a deal with each other to uh, get out by 97, to get to a larger agency, one that paid better, one where we can have a family and a career mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, live working one job. And um, so we made a deal that if, if our pursuit wasn't done by the end of 97, we were out of there. And, uh, he and I both made it out. I made it out to San Diego and he made it out to a small city called CNT, which is a neighboring city. And he just retired, uh, recently as their fire too. Hmm. And he made it all the way up to this, you know, assistant chief of that department. Nice. Yeah. So then, so you find your way to San Diego city. Yep. And San Diego city in 97. How's that for a change? It was night and day. And, um, because the, the agency I had worked for out here is in an area called Heartland. And, I, and actually there's now a Heartland fire department that encompasses three of those cities that were part of it. 
Um, but every rig was a different color. Everyone had the same hose lays, but everyone had different turnout colors, different helmets, different, uh, different logos on the door of their apparatus. It, 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 everyone was three person, um, three person staffing and, uh, not everyone was paramedic. There was very little paramedic at the time. The paramedics were on the ambulance only. And then I made it over to San Diego City. And, and um, after I got through the academy, um, which back in the day, in the 90s, the San Diego City Academy was run pretty much like Marine Corps boot camp. It was pretty intense. And because um, a bunch of old Marine DIs ran it. The, uh, but my first fire coming out of... Uh, San Diego, I was on a truck, which I'd never been on a truck before. And it was a third alarm and it was right underneath the glide path downtown. And I remember it vividly that, uh, you know, as we pulled up on, on the second truck, truck arriving and uh, truck one out of the big house downtown, that's what they call station one. They already had the aerial up and they were about to start flowing defensive water. We pulled around on on the opposite side of the building. Back then it wasn't, you know, side one, two, three, four, Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, you know, was, I'll be honest, in, in the in the late 90s, we were still cowboy free-for-all. Um, the ICS system and strategy and tactics was very minimal. It was basically decided upon by the personalities that were at scene. And this guy that had hired me, this guy named Bill Middleton, he was a captain. He had always worked downtown. He had actually been my interviewing captain to bring me into San Diego City. We pulled up on truck five and, and uh, he comes out of it and they're about to go defensive in this uh, Italian chief on, on B division named Mike Reed. He's, he's now dead. He died of Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, amazing, amazing leader and uh, Italian chief. He, he uh, was about to go defensive and Bill Middleton walks out and, and uh, of this building, he says, give me a truck company with some hooks and a two and a half and I'll save this building. And he turns to us on truck five and he says, well, you heard the man go with him. And we went in there and kicked ass and, and saved the building. That building's still there to this day. Um, and it's actually in my current district. And I think about it often and I think about how uh, I learned a lot from Bill Middleton. He's still alive. His son is now a captain on our job, a well-respected captain in the in the busy sections of our, our department. But the biggest thing I took away from it was I looked around at this third alarm fire and every rig was the same color and every door had the same logo. And there, I think there ended up, I think it went third alarm. Yeah, it did go third alarm. There were seven trucks, uh, rescue was there and all these pumps. And, and I, I thought, man, I made it, I made it to the show. This mm -hmm. is. This is a big deal. This is a big city. We don't need help from anyone else. We got this. And, and that was the, probably the coolest thing I learned out of that was, you know, it's, it's no longer like uh, the dysfunction of interdepartment relationships. It, it, it was one team and that was cool. So when do you start I mean, to get to, to the subjects at hand? When do you start feeling these things pile up on you? You know, you know what the funny thing is, is that it goes way back to the Heartland days, you know, I, and I remember it vividly, October 30th of 93 was the beginning of uh, my professional traumatic experiences. 
um, I was uh, on a firefight. I was a firefighter on an open cab engine. And, you know, back back then, you know, we had a roof, but it was open on the firefighter riding position. And you would hear the captain hit on the roof, you, you know, uh, once if it was a medical aid and twice if it was a fire and you knew you're going to a call. And we had just come off uh, the Interstate 8 that go, goes through San Diego out to Phoenix. We'd had a brush fire on it. And we're driving back to the station and I hear the one thumb. Said, okay, we're going to a, a medical aid. So, and, you know, we pull up to this medical aid, medical aid. We get off at Mollison, just, you know, about a mile down the highway and then turn south on it and pull up this intersection, Madison and Mollison. And when we stop, this guy jumps up on my running board as I'm standing up because I don't know what I'm doing yet. And he's dressed in a St. Louis Cardinals baseball, you know, full, like vivid to this day. I, I still remember exactly what he looks like. You know, he looked like almost like a Ned Flanders mustache, <laughs> um, wearing a full white St. Louis Cardinals baseball uniform. He'd just been coaching little league baseball and, or travel baseball. And he says, you got to go get that kid. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And all of a sudden I hear gunfire and, and, uh, I see this kid laying in the street and, uh, there's a lady running. It's actually in a parking lot and, and there's a lady, older lady running for that kid. And all of a sudden she gets shot in the back and she goes down and it was just like those videos and, uh, that you see people storming the beach in D-Day, Normandy. And then I hear gunfire to my left, and I look over, and there's El Cajon PD cops shooting back at this guy. And then I hear him discharge again. I look up, and he's on a balcony of an apartment. He's shooting at the cops. And then somehow he ends up swinging his rifle towards us, and he starts shooting at us. And then the engineer of, of, of the rig I was on just puts it in reverse and floors it. And I'm throwing down inside the cab and we're out of there. And the next time I see that little girl, she's dying in the lifelight landing zone. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'll be perfectly honest that, that, that I was not equipped at that stage of life. Um, you know, 24 years old to see someone murdered that way uh, and innocent to see that, you know, a child had been murdered that way and to see that a grandparent had been murdered that way. And then, you know, to be shot at, um, which, you know, now it's, unfortunately, it's commonplace in the fire service. People get shot at the fire service. You know, we've had people at our work stabbed. Um, but at the time, I was not ready for that. And um, the crazy thing was, is that we didn't really have any post-traumatic stress uh, counseling after that to figure it out. And it became a very personal experience where I could not speak about that incident without um, welling up emotionally unless someone else had been there. If, if someone had been there and they, they had so-called seen that elephant with me, I could talk to them. That when people wanted to ask about it, I remember that my, one, one of my mom's sisters had come in town and she said, oh, I saw that on CNN. Tell me about that. And in my head, you know, like this is my sweet aunt. It, you know, like I'm not going to say this to her, but in, in my head, I was like, who the fuck are you to ask me about that? You know, like, leave me alone. Like, that. you weren't there. You don't know how that felt. You didn't see it. You don't hit, hear the sounds. And I didn't realize at the time that, like, this had added on to other things previous in my life that it was baggage. And it, and it took a long time. And, and that actually, like, the pain of it went away 
way later in, in my life. And, and that was in the 2018 time um, when I decided like I really needed to fix myself because that old analogy that you always hear, and it sounds so cliched, like, oh, hey, you know, like you're a glass and as you're, as you travel down the path in the fire service, you know, they're going to pour liquid in the glass. And eventually, you know, if you don't, you know, drain it, it's going to overflow. And, you know, I just thought those are the people that aren't suited to be in the fire service. You know, they're just weak. Right. No, 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 it's true. It's true. And, you know, like every experience is different for every person. Um, I think that the people who change the fire service and, and uh, law enforcement and the military that are in combat arms, I, I think they're much more emotionally resilient than the average person. And I think they can handle more. Problem is, is they handle more and more and more and more and, and they find coping mechanisms and they think they're okay until one day they're not. And yeah. And those coping mechanisms are always questionable at times, not always, but many times questionable. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my coping mechanisms are, um, you know, I, I've never been a drug user per se, right? I've never been the person that like, oh, I'm going to get high on cocaine and party all night. I've, I've never tried cocaine. Um, but I, uh, up until recently, I didn't even classify what I was using as drugs. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell myself they were drugs. Alcohol was not a drug to me. And here's a shocker one, boys um, and girls, uh, caffeine. Yeah. Because uh, guess what? Um, some of you may be still doing this, but I was living a life where I was using alcohol as a downer to uh, have the benzodiazepine effect of healing brain trauma and to stop thinking about things and to be able to sleep. And then I was using caffeine in copious amounts uh, to get up and go and to function in life, to function with my family. And that really came to a head um, prior to 2018. I was working at uh, one of the busiest stations in the country. Um, it was station four in San Diego. It's in the East Village gas lamp area. And it, it, every year, it's either the first, second, or third busiest station in our city. And it's um, the skid row of, of our city. It's right there by the Padres ballpark. And uh, it's rife with homelessness, violence, and, and uh, crime. And the violence that's there is, is the psychiatric violence. It's not, it's not a gang area. Right. It's not a, a gang area where you can treat people with respect and courtesy, and they'll treat you with respect and courtesy because you're there to help them. This is one of those places that you have no idea what that psychopath is doing, what medicines they're off, what medicines they're on, what drugs they're on. And they're completely unpredictable. Um, and they're violent and they're all armed because they live on the street. And, and that I'm sure is the exact same for every major city that has a homeless population. It's, it's right there. Well, ours was there and, you know, we were running uh, 7,000 calls a year on our engine trying to protect our rescue. So the rescue was available for rescue calls. When I say rescue, all the people out there, I'm not talking about an ambulance. Uh, we're talking about an actual heavy rescue. Um, call it a squad, call it a heavy rescue, call it a USAR, call it whatever you want. Be we inside our team, we call it the rescue. Um, but you know, like if you're running medical aid on the rescue, you're not available for the incidents of significance. No. So the pump, 
because it you know, was jumping every single call we could to keep it available and in quarters. And, you know, you're up, you know, when you average out, you know, over seven, I think it was 7,192 or something like that the last year we were there as a team. And um, you, you start doing the math on that. It's a ridiculous amount. You're not getting any sleep and you're trying to, when you do get to go home, you're trying to live your normal life. Well, you got to sleep, you're wound up high. So you drink to go to sleep and then you wake up and you're probably still drunk, you know, still under the influence. It's time to go get the kids or, you know, go meet the wife for lunch or do something, shop for dinner. And, you know, and then you're using caffeine to get yourself up and going. And that just makes everything worse. And that sleep deprivation and no REM sleep adds to the psychosis that everything in this trade contributes to. And I, I know that that was a long roundabout, but it, it's all one giant picture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like you and I could go probably for hours talking about significant calls over a span of a 30 year career. Oh, uh, death is my business. Right. You know, it's, um, you know, I, I can't go anywhere in this County without thinking about dead people. I have, I have hundreds of ghosts in my head and I've seen people die in the worst ways and, and it doesn't go away. Um, you know, we joke about it inside my division, you know, uh, you know, we have three divisions in our team, A, B, and C, probably like most people, most departments in this country. And, you know, we call it riding the reaper, you know, when you're on rescue, you know, more often than not, you're recovering someone, you're not rescuing someone. The rescues are few and far between more often than not, you're recovering someone, whether it's someone that got blasted by a train, someone that, um, drowned, someone that got buried in a confined space, someone that went through a machine that, you know, took their life, you know, all those things are unfortunate things that, you know, you have to go get, or, you know, even just like as crazy as it seems and how minimal as it seems, you know, we have homeless people living underground here in San Diego and ACLU has deemed all of the drainage systems in California to be a, um, a place that is reasonable for them to live in and have kept all the state and local agencies from uh, putting any kind of restrictive plating or mechanism to keep homeless people out of it. So homeless people live underground. And when it doesn't rain for six months at a time, sometimes they die underground and then it's confined space body recovery. Right. And you're going in there and that body's been in there for, you know, three weeks since the last homeless person visited that person. You got to go get them. And it's, there's a, there's a lot of visual uh, uh, baggage that comes along with the job. Yeah. And that's almost the, I don't want to say ancillary, but it's the stuff that nobody thinks about when they think about firefighters experiencing traumas, you know, the, the, a body recovery. I think the civilians, we use that term, don't even think about that part for fire, for fire and rescue. They don't, they don't, they think everything is, uh, they think everything is a save mm -hmm. or a medical aid or, you know, an, you know, when a save happens, everything's good. You know, they don't think about the things like, uh, you know, like when you're pulling someone out of a burning building and, and, uh, you know, when you, you're in a high heat situation and then all their skin sloughs off as you're trying to drag them out, they don't think about that stuff. You know, they, you know, and it's funny because funny, but not so funny. People often the question, and I know all of you can relate to this. You, you get the question, what's the worst thing you ever saw? And, you know, the answer that is inside all of our heads is 
you know, first, like you're not entitled to know that, but second, do you really want to lose sleep? Because like, I'm going to tell you things you can't even imagine. And you're going to be vicariously traumatized because you're going to have to live with that image in your head. And, it, and it's there. And, and I don't think I'm special. I don't think that I'm any different than anyone else. There's plenty of people inside this profession across this country that are carrying all those things in their head personally and not sharing it. It's a very private thing. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. So you talked about 2018 being kind of a turning point though, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2018 was a huge turning point. What, um, that what, was, makes, it a, what makes it a turning point and why? Um, there, were, there was another traumatic event and there was some good. So there was, there was a horrific event and there was good. Um, when I was speaking of being at station four, um, that was an environment that was destroying me and I was refusing to admit it. I was carrying so much baggage, um, doing the wrong things, living the wrong life, um, never cheating on my wife, never doing any of that, that kind of stuff. But, you know, the drinking, the self-medicating, the coping, you know, the uh, abusive behavior as a result of sleep deprivation, the psychosis spinning out of control as a result of sleep deprivation, all of it was accumulating. And the, the administration of our department realized that like, Hey, we've, we've invested a ton of money in this team. You know, we're a closed list. You have to be qualified, trained, educated, and selected to come into the technical rescue program. Um, and the, the department had, uh, you know, running a technical rescue program is very expensive for any city. And the city of San Diego had, had said, you know, like this program would be more effective if we can get them out of this blight where they're more available to do what they're supposed to do and have more time to train. Um, so they decided to move us to the other side of downtown where there was already an engine company there. They moved us over to the, the Bayside by Little Italy. So the, the, the reprieve was in coming up where there would be more sleep, more time to train, more downtime. That was coming. So the, the downside of what happened was we were at a fire uh, in, the, in the gas lamp area, kitchen fire, early in the morning. And it was a nothing, nothing fire, just like anything else, you know, kitchen fire, restaurant, the gas lamp had, had, uh, been self-extinguished by, a, a, an automatic extinguishment system. And so there was nothing for rescue to do. And the battalion chief said, Hey, there's a, there's a fire breaking over at the beach, you know, 20 miles away. And, and, uh, sounds like people are trapped and everyone's going to have a hard time getting to that spot. And if anyone knows San Diego it's right by the Belmont roller coaster, right on the beach. And, uh, and he says, just start going, it's going multiple alarms, just go. And he cut us loose from that fire in the restaurant. So we, we hit the freeway and sure enough, as the sun's coming up, I, I still have a picture of it. You know, there's a header on the horizon, you know, like we're 15 miles away and there's a header. And, uh, we ended up being the 
first arriving unit of the second alarm, the last arriving unit of the first alarm. And as soon as the battalion chief heard we were there, he says, hey, I have victims trapped on the second floor. Go for search and rescue. And so me and my guys did. I had a very well-trained crew. We'd, we'd done this many times and trained on this evolution many times. You know, on the rescue, we run two ticks, um, one for the left side of the rig, one for the right side of the rig. We don't have a walkthrough. We have a cab mm-hmm. and uh, we have two firefighters, one paramedic, one non-paramedic, and then an engineer and, and a captain on the rig. So the firefighter paramedic was behind me. And, you know, with that guy, he and I knew we had the responsibility of a search line, a tick, and a set of irons, and each of us wear a go-home tool. And we knew that the right side of the building was ours as soon as we went through the door. And the engineer knew that the left side of the building was there. Uh, and and then the firefighters would talk to each other on the radio, and we and the engineer and the captain talked to each other on on the command group and listened to the whole incident on the command group. But we split the team and real quick search as fast as we can. And um, so we went in, and we uh, my firefighter Scott and I we went right and immediately. Well, actually, as we're going up the stairs in the back, the in- entrance is off Charlie's side. And the first alarm had stretched lines and they couldn't get water on the fire. They had stretched short um, because they had to drag around a block and access the stairs off the alley. That was the access. It was a taxpayer building. It was commercial with uh, commercial on the bottom with apartments above and uh, center hallway apartments above. And it was an older building, um, probably platform construction right after the war, not balloon. and uh, so as we're going up the back stairs, and I, re- I remember this vividly, this other guy that is a uh, firefighter that worked, uh, he's now promoted, but he he uh, was a guy that came through as a relief firefighter at rescue often. He said, hey, don't go. I have I, stretched as far as I can go. I can't give you protection. And I just remember uh, Scott with me says, copy that. And I said, let's go, Scott. And, yeah, we knew we were going and we went. We made it to the second floor and um, my guys, and, and, and I try not to use names. I'm not going to use full names, but my engineer, Steve, and firefighter Dustin, they went left and they're searching. It's hot and, you know, high heat and zero biz. And Scott and I had a staircase to the right that was on fire. We went up that and there was a bedroom up there. We searched that. We came down. And I thought like the whole time, I'm like, oh, great. You know, I'm crawling on this floor, fire below me, went up the burning staircase. I was like, I'm probably going to go through the floor again. And I, I remember vividly thinking that like, and uh, fortunately it didn't happen. We came down, we searched and, and uh, the way we would save air is every room we came across, the, the guy with the tick would stay at the door and the, the other guy would go in. It wasn't like captains have it easy on this, like the way I'd worked with these guys, whereas I would take my turn searching rooms too. And so Scott's watching me from the door and we had a bedroom and you know, he gave me the look at the tick real quick. And I looked, it was a bedroom and I saw where the bed was. I saw where the closet was. And I dove in, got in there. And as soon as you know, I got away from the tick, it was black and hot. It was zero visibility, hundred percent black. Can't even see your own light. And, uh, search the room. No, no problem. Like, and, and I, I remember we came out of that and we're like, Hey, primary's clear. We called it and then water's getting up there. They're putting the fire out and, uh, we're on to another assignment. I think we went up to the roof with a truck and cause fire had run 
like up to the parapet and we're helping with that. And all of a sudden I hear on the secondary, they got a victim coming out mm. and my stomach just dropped. Yeah. And, uh, and he came out CPR status. Um, he died. And, uh, I asked the company that found him where they found him and it was in my room. And it, it, he was, he was wedged between the bed and the wall. And I had reached under the bed and I had searched on top of the bed, but I didn't pull the bed away from the wall and I missed him and he died. Um, you know, a lot of people have, um, and, and it, 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 long, long, long story short, right then and there, that was, that was like where I went into a deep spiral. Um, my, my behavior was ruining home at the time. And now I had lost at work and I felt like I killed somebody and that seed planted in my head that I killed him. And I went into a horrible, horrible place and, uh, guilt, survivor's guilt, everything that had ever been poured in my cup, everything was overflowing. And that, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier that I had never had a healthy coping mechanism, hadn't been going to counseling, hadn't used any of the methods I've been using as of late, you know, the last few years to actually be a, a mentally healthy individual. Um, and it took me down to a, a real deep, dark place and, um, put me, put me into a point where I remember journaling after that. I, I remember that one time I actually wrote in my journal, am I crazy? And, um, I, I felt totally insane and, uh, became very suicidal and just didn't want to be here. And, um, well, it was very hard to keep going. Um, it was very emotional, even though, um, uh, shortly after that, we moved out of that busy station and I started getting sleep. I was in a bad spot and it took a lot of things changing, including me wanting to change, wanting to live for my wife, for my kids, to keep my family together. Cause I was destroying my family. Uh, my behavior, my attitudes were destroying my marriage, destroying my kids. They didn't want to be around me. I didn't even want to be around me. I didn't want to be who I was. And so I had to make a choice, you know, either, either end it and get over it or, you know, don't quit and, and survive. And, you know, I chose to survive. Yeah, you know, and and you know, get better, and that and that took exploring a lot of things, and it took a lot of work. Um, and uh, I'm not unique in this. I, I'm not unique in the suicidal ideations. Um, this hat I'm wearing right now is one of my fellow rescue captains who we buried two years ago. He took his own life. Um, he wrote on my. I, I carried his remains. To his grave, uh, you know, on my left in rescue. Um, his name's Paul Pereira. And I say that because, you know, we die twice. And that is when we physically die. And, and the second time is when people don't remember your name. And they don't say your name anymore. And the whole time I'm alive. I'll continue to say Paul's. Yeah, that that topic, that suicide, it, it when it happens close to you or in even just in the department or ancillary to you, it, it hits so hard. You know, 
I get it. People, I get it because I've been there. That it makes sense. It's going to be better without you around. Mm -hmm. But the ripple that comes out of it, it's wide. It's wide and that wake never stops rocking. It never stops. Um, you leave holes everywhere you go. And uh, it's selfish. I realize that. And, uh, you know, I want to be available to anybody that's battling that. You know, if they need to talk, I'll talk to them. I, 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 I'm, I'm not saying I'm successful in keeping people from doing anything. Obviously, I'm wearing a hat from someone that didn't make it. But there is another side, and the sun will come up. You have to choose to be happy, and you have to choose to persevere, and you have to find what works for you. And there are so many different ways of what will work for you, but I'll tell you what won't. Internalizing and using drugs to cope will not work. And that goes back to what I said earlier is that, yeah, coffee and alcohol with that sleep deprivation and you know, shutting down and waking up, those are drugs. Those are uppers and downers, kids. And you know that's not going to work. It's not healthy. So you talked about after this fire, you talked about writing, am I crazy? And so you're obviously questioning your, your own sanity. Yeah. What makes you, what makes you question it? What, what are the manifestations of, of quote unquote crazy for you? For me, it was just, uh, wanting to harm myself, wanting, I, I vividly remember there were times I would look at, well, first off around this time, um, Right after that, I started journaling. I started journaling and then I started, I started the tier one athletes page and it started off and a lot of the posts are gone, but I, I would start to write things anonymously, just trying to get my head out, try, trying to get things out of my head, try to make right. sense of where I was, um, where I was, where I was going, um, the darkness, uh, memories, uh, and then like that turned into someone following it. And then it turned into a hundred people and that turned to 500 people and it turned to a thousand. And I was like, I remember 5,000 and, and then like people started asking me for coaching and guest speaking. And all of a sudden, like I'm not anonymous anymore. Um, but in that time that, that, um, being withdrawn and, and, and spiraling internally, there were times I actually thought like, well, if I don't kill myself, this phone that I have is the only thing that ties me to this world. And I was, I would often envision myself throwing it into a trash can and walking away from my life. No one knowing where I was and just disappearing, just wanting to get out, to get, get out of my life, my existence. And the problem was, is that my peace in all of that was actually my addiction of trauma. That the outside world was my chaos. Inside work, mayhem, trauma was where I was at peace. 
Yeah, that's a that's it, a theme we've talked about throughout this show. It's, and and you're right, it's very real. That chaos is comforting to people. It, and and it's it and it's so wrong because that chaos that we live in, yeah, it's comforting. Yeah, you we're good at it. And the addiction of you know the the, the firefighter addiction like it, it is riding on a rig and seeing a, a header on the horizon right? Mm-hmm. There's no greater feeling. Right. You, you got the air horn going, you got the mechanical yeah. going, you see a header on the horizon and, you, and you're like, you feel alive. Oh yeah. You, you feel alive. You have a purpose to make a difference right now. Mm-hmm. And you're going to, and you're going to throw it all on the table and you're like, fuck yeah, I'm going in that thing. I may not come out, but I'm going in that thing and I'm going to make a difference. And that is such an unhealthy addiction. I don't have the answer to it. No, I, I don't have the answer to it because like eventually it all comes to an end. And for me, it's coming to an end at 19 months. I'll never ride a rig again. Um, but with, with that comes all the stuff that you see and do and the way you think and being addicted to that chaos and, the cha- and, and fixing chaos. And, and then what I found was I was good at that, but I couldn't pay bills. I couldn't live a normal life. I, I couldn't function as a grown up running my own life. I, I, you know, I couldn't like fix the house. I couldn't pay the bills. I couldn't, you know, get the kids to school on time, whatever it was. Like I wasn't good at living that life and and it, and, and it stressed me out. And then when I would go back and just do what I do and do what I got paid to do, that was like, I'm here. Okay. You know, it's fascinating that you bring that up, the, the, the paying bills or the, or as you said, it's quite simply not being able to be an adult for yourself. And a lot of us in myself included, like to chalk that up to, ah, oh, that's just ADHD talking. And it's well, not, ne- that ne- that's not necessarily true because it, it, it does manifest itself in this trauma and this chaos and this love of chaos and this, this disdain for the calm. Yeah. And I think, um, and, and, and I've, I've noticed recently a couple things that about myself, um, and I don't know if anyone can identify with this. I, I imagine someone can and may tie into what you just said. It's really difficult for me to pay attention to something long enough outside of work to actually get anything out of it, such as reading a book mm. and starting to ch- become a, a, a chosen discipline for me. I'm trying to do the. I'm going to sit down for 15 minutes. I'm going to try to read a book yeah, and try to, and try to be comfortable without the chaos and the calm, uh, without, you know, a distraction, you know, whether it's guys are doing the video games when they're off or they're chewing tobacco while they're drinking beer or while they're, you know, gambling or whether, you know, they're out mountain biking. So like try sitting still, right? you know, try, try living, try just putting, you know, the, the stuff together, like, you know, don't make your day about going surfing, skydiving, mountain biking, rock climbing, um, playing video games. The dis- all these things are distractions. Yeah. Can, can you actually can you actually sit down and run a house? It's pretty boring. It's pretty boring, but it, it's amazing how much energy it actually takes and how much focus. Um, if if I didn't have my my beautiful loving wife running our life, we would be a shipwreck. You know. You know. There's so many themes there that, that, that I can relate to that, that whole thing about 
man, I used to be a reader, you know, and I, unlike you, we're the same age and unlike you, I, I didn't join early on. I, I joined second career, second, third career and at late in life. So I've only been at it for 10 years and I'm 54, but before this, yeah, man, reading was, reading was a huge part of my life. You know, I, I would sit and read multiple books in a, in a week, you know, I'd have a couple of books here and a, and a book there. And now it's yeah. like, man, I'm taking, I'm taking months to finish a book and it, and it just, then it gets, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point, because then I get frustrated with myself and I, and I, and I, I, you know, I, it turns to some negative self-talk and you're like, no, get that shit out of your head, man. Just, just read what you can read, do this, do that. But it, there's, there's gotta be that process where you're able to come back to center and focus. And, and I haven't typically really haven't found that to be honest with you yet. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And it's, I'm trying so hard because, uh, you know, like I said, my, you know, my, my journey's coming to an end. I, I signed that agreement three and a half years ago that I would stay on a contract for five years. I don't have a choice. I, I technically are already retired. Um, so in 19 months, that's my last day. Yeah. And, and, uh, there's, there's no replacement for this. You know, everything that could possibly replace this is not going to hire someone who's 56 years old. Right. So, so, you know, there's no becoming a cop at 56. There's no joining the military at 56. Like, Hey man, like you, you got to be comfortable with the end of it and find the peace and calm in your life and find a way to focus. And, um, I think that ties into a lot of the things I've accomplished, uh, getting to where I am, where I can talk about it and the things that actually worked for me. And I want to throw some things out there because, um, people need to know, like you're one, you're not alone. Um, and, and two, there are things that will make your brain heal other than alcohol. Um, so, um, uh, San Diego city fire department has done a great job creating a behavioral wellness unit. Um, I would argue that we're, uh, one of the top behavioral wellness units in the country. Um, we have a program called focus, uh, which is accessible to us at all times with counselors that we, we can go to for free. Been huge. Um, uh, now granted, not all of them really know, <laughs> not everyone will have a different experience with trauma. Some people like will accumulate a ton of trauma over their career, such as our age. And if you'd never gone and you, you know, you're going to have to start like, you know, back at the beginning, which I found out, well, mine started, you know, when I talked to my counselor, this all started in 1993. Mm -hmm. you know, it took a lot of sessions to get a lot of stuff out to go from 1993 to 2018 and to where we are now to 2023. Because guess what? You stay in the trade. You don't stop accumulating trauma. No, no, not at all. It, it, and, and here's, here's the other part of it is talking about it doesn't make it go away. Mm -mm. It, so, um, and I think that's what people misunderstand about it. So I ended up going to this counseling program and we ended up doing EMDR. And, um, I can't remember what EMDR stands for, but anyone that's listening that's lived with trauma and, and it's painful, please look it up look, and request to get to it. Um, I can equate it to this. It's like watching a game of Pong. Mm -hmm. If anyone remembers that video game mm -hmm. and you pick a color that's pleasing to your eye. And they take you back to the incident that start, you start with for me, which was the one I told everybody about back in 1993. And you watch this thing go back and forth like a ping pong ball on, on the screen with your pleasing color. 
and they speed it up and they speed it up and speed it up and they're talking to you. And before you know it, like you, you, you're, you're reliving the whole experience and things are coming back into detail that you never knew, um, that you had seen, that you had heard, that you had discussed. And they get the whole thing out of you while you're being, I think it's basic hypnotization uh, is very, what it very much equates to. Um, but the end result is that that memory that you had taken and shoved in the back of your head and drank down and suppressed and stepped on and said, I'm not going to talk about it. It hurts, blah, blah, blah. Every time I think about it, I well up emotionally and you know, my eyes get teary or my voice cracks. Um, by doing this EMDR, it, it's like taking that wrinkled shirt of a memory out of a corner and you iron it and you fold it and you press it and you put it away and you put it in a drawer and then you label it. And now guess what? That memory, it never went away, but now it's properly processed. Right. And so I did EMDR. I did a lot of sessions because I had to get through 20 something years at the time of memories and, and and it was like a, it was like a Rolodex. It was like, oh, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this. And it was just a shit ton. And I remember the the counselor going, you know, I, um, I'm glad we're helping you. I'm going to have to get someone else to start doing some of this with you. Like some of the things that you've said are like, uh, they're starting to accumulate on me now. And I was vicariously traumatizing, you know, one of these people. And I ended up working for, um, through, I finished my counseling with a guy who had been a SWAT cop. And, and, uh, he had become our counselor and psychiatrist. It, it worked really well, but I found that like, there was still a lot of angst in, in the focus issues that we were just discussing. Um, and then I found out about a program called Saddles and Service, and I'm a huge, uh, proponent of this one. It's an equine therapy program that we have here in San Diego County and I'm, I'm involved in it. And the goal of it is to take veterans and law enforcement and first responders um, firefighters and basically give them basic horse skills and eventually get you on a cattle drive, driving, uh, cattle out in Wyoming. And, um, the guy that I was assigned to work with had been a Vietnam era green beret. And he put me in this pen with a horse and, um, the horse's name was Dylan, giant patch Clydesdale. Hmm. And this Clydesdale would not come anywhere fucking near me. And, and, uh, this cowboy that was working with me said that horse sees two things in the world. He sees prey and predators mm. and he sees you as a predator and you're going to have to learn how to be on his level. So he's not coming over the ears. So I'm not letting you out of this pen until you can let your guard down and that horse accepts you. Right. And. It took a lot of focus to let the energy off because horses are amazing animals. And, um, and it took me a long time. It, it, it just took a better part of an hour to, to get to the point where my breathing and my posture and my mental energy and you know, the horse can sense that energy. And I had my back to the horse and like, finally I, I felt like, okay, I'm good. And all of a sudden that horse came up with his giant head and he stood over me. And with his head, he grabbed my chest and he pulled me into his chest and he, he gave me a hug. And at that time, it was just like everything had been weighing on me. I just felt it start to come out and I, you know, just started crying. And uh, to this day, when I see Dylan and I walk on that property and he sees me, he notices me and he recognizes me. And mm -hmm. um, 
pretty amazing. Um, equine therapy has been a huge help for me. Um, and that was just for the traumatic experiences and being able to, you know, let that angst and energy off. And then the other part of it was the focus, what you and I were talking about. And I came across it unintentionally, um, archery. I, I, yes. uh, I use archery and, um, there's, there's no traumatic brain injury of a boom of, you know, discharging guns, you know, a lot of firefighters, cops, you know, military, everyone's into their guns and they love guns and they love to go shooting and do the, you know, hunting and everything. But, you know, like, um, putting an arrow down range and, and putting it down range accurately is a meditative process. Yeah. Um, cause that, that bow is, it's, it's a very, nowadays they're very complex machines. And they're, they're, they're tuned very finely by all the bow technicians out there. Um, they're everywhere here in San Diego. There's great ones, great ones. One, um, uh, but I, I got into archery and, and, uh, I found that, you know, when, when I'm a little messed up and angst, you know, putting, you know, 20, 50 arrows down range and focusing and, you know, going through the shot process, cause everything has to be right exactly with you or your, or your arrow's not going to hit the target. Um, and, uh, that, that's been a, a great vehicle for me. And, uh, I'm trying to turn that into actually bow hunting, um, have not made it out there yet to bow hunt, but I've, I've done the total archery challenge and gone out and done that. And, uh, I'm addicted to that concept now, of Western bow hunting. Well, it's, that's fascinating. Cause yeah, you think about it and it is a meditative state. I mean, you have to, you have to calm the breathing focus your concentration and you're, you're paying attention to one thing. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's helping me bring my ability to focus back and, and, you know, not be like you said, ADHD, whatever, you know, people that have post-traumatic stress, they all have that focus problem. Mm -hmm. Um, whatever we're going to call it. I, I, I don't know what we're going to call it, but the, uh, the archery definitely helps. By the way, we'll go back to, I've done a little bit of EMDR and it's eye movement, uh, desensitization and reprocessing. Oh, that's what, that's what yeah, it stands for. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes I have to refresh my brain as to what it is. And, and, and you're right. It is. I, I like that analogy of taking a wrinkled shirt from the corner of the room and, and ironing it out, hanging it up. And, and now you have a proper memory of something, not this garble, you know, the garbled negativity attached to everything you, you, you kind of. You have a, you, you put it in a proper place and, and if you need to revisit it once in a while, it's, it's okay to revisit it. You're not going to be, yep. you're not gonna be crippled by that, that visit. Absolutely. And yeah. that's the important part. And, and, and not only is it important to do the past, but it, it, it teaches you and it trains you how to, um, cause if you're going to stay in this trade, you're still going to see things mm -hmm. and it allows you to learn how to properly process it moving forward so that you don't have to like constantly go back for someone else to help you to process it, to, to, you know, put it away right first time. Right. Instead of just throwing it in the corner and hitting the bottle of alcohol and having beers with the boys or, you know, getting off and getting high. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, learning how to process it properly so that as you continue to be productive in your career and you still continue to do good for other people, being there for the worst moments other people have, that you can process it properly. Because 
um, they're going to continue to happen if you stay in the trade. And then the other part of that is you need to get good for yourself at recognizing when it's not going right. And when instead of letting it slide away from you again, you need to be able to go, I'm struggling with this one. I'm going to have to have a little help. And that just happened to me recently. Um, you know, I had, I had a rescue where a young lady had, uh, been a passenger in a car that was in a wreck that ran over an electrical junction box and dislodged it. And so the lady had not been injured in the, in the, in the accident at all, but she stepped out Mm. and stood on the junction box and it re-energized and electrocuted her to the car. And when I got there, I, w- I was there first and I was not working on the rescue that night. I was working on a tarp. And, uh, but we had to use rescue to winch the car off eventually. Um, but I watched, I watched this girl burn to death. Yeah. And, and I watched her, you know, I watched her hair burn off. I watched her clothes burn off. I watched her legs burn off down to the knees as she's attached to this car until the power was shut off. And at the time it wasn't, it was significant for me, but the worst part was, and this is where I wanted to tie this in for everybody else. The next morning, um, my wife calls me and asks me if I had heard from our daughter, who's 20 years old. And I said, no, why? And she said, well, she didn't come home last night. And, you know, I'm in a, in a, city of a transient population of 3 million people. But all of a sudden in my head, I couldn't recognize who that girl was, but I started processing that that could have been my daughter. Right. And in, in, in my dysfunctional thought process, it started to become my daughter. And what are the odds? You know, like I said, there's a transient population, 3 million people in this city every day. So my daughter, who's an adult, didn't come home, didn't check in. Um, turns out my daughter is a lifeguard for the city, a beach guard. She was at work. She's not answering her phone because she can't have her phone at work. Yeah, she's doing her job. She's doing her job. Right. She's doing what she's supposed to do, you know. And in my messed up head, you know, and I never told my wife this, I'm like, I started thinking that was hurt. And that's what you have to realize in yourself. But like, you, you can't let your emotions and your negative thoughts and, and the traumatic experiences control you and how you see the world. You're going to have to control it. And that's what this is all about. This, this is all about like, you, hey, we all chose this career path, whatever it is. We chose this career path. It's going to end up um, giving us the thing we all carry, yeah. right? That, that's, that's, so if, if you're going to choose to carry them, how are you going to choose to deal with them? And, and you have to choose healthy methods instead of unhealthy methods. And, you know, no one's going to know you like you know yourself. And it, it's going to take a lot of work, um, especially if, if you were deep behind the curveball like I was. Um, it's a, it's a lot of counseling. It's a lot of therapy. It's a lot of meditative process, staying off of controlled substances, uh, giving up the stu- substances, uh, not using uh, alcohol as a crutch. It's not a controlled substance, but it is a drug, which forces you to 
use caffeine. And I, I imagine, as I say, that I'm identifying with quite a bit of uh, people out there that, you know, tie one on and the next day, drink, you know, eight, 10 cups of coffee to get through the day. Um, you know, I make an argument that alcohol is, is more damaging than some of the controlled substances. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And it's, it's because, uh, the alcohol industry is legal mm-hmm. and they've gotten it through. And, and I'm, I'm not going to say I, I never drink anymore. Um, you know, I created this environment at, at my rescue company that every time it was your birthday, the other seven guys on your crew gave you a bottle of booze, mm. you know? So once a year you're getting seven free bottles of booze coming your way. And, um, I'm not really the big drinker I was. Uh, I'll still have a few with the boys after work, you know, or, uh, you know, great occasion, but I've learned that I'm not using that as a crutch anymore. Dude, let's I'm be honest. Alcohol, it, it hits a little differently at 54 the day after. Well, it, yeah, it does. <laughs> it and, and, and if you're trying to, if you're trying to stay in shape, yeah. um, and, and if you're injured, um, here's the other thing that like alcohol makes pain of injuries go away for the time that you're under the influence of right. alcohol. Yeah. But as soon as you're not under the influence, those injuries hurt worse. Inflammation is much worse. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, that's what I've found because, you know, I'm dealing with, uh, a, a tear in my shoulder, a tear in my knee, um, an unknown injury in my hip that I can't fix, uh, that I'm in pain sitting all the time. Um, those three injuries, like I, I'm, I'm trying to stay in shape and, I, I don't need to add alcohol to inflammation to the entire right side of my body to right. the point where I can't, can't use my body. Right. You know, I want to be able, I want to be able to work out and I want to be able to go do what the 25, 35 year old rescue firefighters doing, what he's climbing, where he's going, you know, all that. I want to be able to do the same thing. You know, I want to pass my swim test. I want to climb SeaWorld Tower and rappel out of it. You know, I want to do all the fun shit that I'm paid to do. So. So you mentioned it briefly and, and, and you've mentioned it on and off. Uh, tell me a little bit more about tier one. Well, like I said, tier one athletes started off as a place where, uh, a guy that didn't have his name out there, uh, was dumping a lot of the stuff in his head because he didn't find a place to put it. Um, and I always had this belief that, you know, firefighters, uh, are tactical athletes. You know, I, I love to believe that. And I think we are. And, and in the last, since I started the, the page, it's definitely become a truism. Um, firefighters, law enforcement, um, military, we're all tactical athletes. We're using our body to accomplish a task to help other people. So I created this page, page tier one athletes and started writing my workouts on there, what I was doing, because it ties into what I just said. I was as I aged, I tried to find a way to stay fit, to keep, to be able to do what the 20 something year old kid can do when I'm a 50 something year old person. Um, and so I, you know, was writing the strength component, uh, the tactical conditioning opponent component, the, the endurance component, and then the, uh, rehabilitation component. I was writing all of that out and posting it and putting what my workouts were. And then I would alternate, uh, between, you know, uh, basically, um, not always coming from San Diego city because like I can provide photos and videos from San Diego city fire department, but the law enforcement community, I'd have to hijack 
pictures from that and the military the same. Because I'm, I'm not in those. And I ended up uh, through this becoming friends with quite a few people that would provide content. And I had really good photos of, you know, tactical athletes in the fire and law and military environment doing what they do best. And then I would post the workouts and I would post a concept of how to become like a better human being. And it was more coaching for myself on how I wanted to be as a human being than telling anyone else how to be. And this Instagram page blossomed and it, and it ended up, I think right now, without touching it, I think currently it's like, uh, I, I have not put out more than two or three posts in the last year. I think it's at 14,400 people following it. Pretty significant for a nobody like me. Um, I, and I, I really am. I'm just a nobody. I'm just a guy that, you know, did a job for 30 something years. Um, but it, it did end up turning into speaking engagements and I, I've been guest speaker at several things. People reached out to me, whether it was uh 4th of July or September 11th or to a classroom during zoom during, during COVID time, I was a guest speaker at a young man's classroom in Florida. And I'm still in touch with this young man. This young man is now a CrossFit athlete and he, uh, is, has a desire to be a firefighter and he's a fire explorer over on the other side of the country. And, you know, I've had a positive influence in development of his life. I don't want to use his name. He's still a minor. Yeah. He's, he's still in high school, but, um, he's, you know, it's, it's been an opportunity to give back and I've had an amazing opportunity, not only to give back, but I've met an, an amazing amount of people that, uh, do these jobs, whether it was other firefighters, um, or, uh, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, um, SWAT officers. And I ended up thinking, you know what? I, I, I want to share this. I want to share these relationships with other people. And so I started podcasting and I got a good dozen of them out with random, these people that I have had been blessed to know through my connections and shared those relationships with other people. And they, they were organic conversations, just like the one we're having now. And they were, they ended up being really good episodes. And then I, I, I lost my way when I got injured. I, I was like, what, what am I doing with this? Like, I, I didn't set out to be a podcast host. I didn't set out to become an Instagram influencer. I didn't set out to have uh, merchandise, you know, like I'm wearing this shirt now, you know, this is one of my shirts. I, I don't sell them anymore. I don't sell the hats. I don't sell the shirts, the patches. I, I kind of lost my way and it was turning into a business. And, and it was never anything I really intended to do. It, it originally started out as my platform to heal myself. And I ended up, by healing myself, ended up helping others. Um, where it is right now, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go. Um, I do enjoy the podcasting realm. I enjoy being a guest on podcasts. I've been a guest on several and I really enjoy talking to other people and hearing their experiences. And so I may continue to do it. Um, but when I'm no longer a, 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 you know, rescue captain, tier one athlete, I'm just a, re, you know, retired has been, it's kind of hard to keep her Instagram page of tier one athletes. If you're not actually doing it, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. I think you can swing it. I think you can swing it still. Well, maybe, um, I, I know that the fitness component is not going to change. Um, but, you know, like I get made fun of a lot for how hard I work out, um, mostly by younger generations, but, you know, um, uh, and my family, but you know, how hard I work out and granted, like if you, like if I was out doing the, Hey, take my shirt off type thing, 
I'm a, I'm a 54 year old guy, right? I'm, I am not like, um, one of my good friends who is an Instagram influencer, who is a retired SWAT cop, um, a guy named Eric McCormick, who runs outlaw strength. Now that guy's a bodybuilder Mm -hmm. and, and he is our age and he's freaking ripped (laughs) and, and, and he's insane shape. I'm not in insane shape. Right. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got nothing on the outside that people go, oh, that guy, look how great fitness he is. You, I want to know what he does. No. As a matter of fact, if most people saw my myself with my shirt off, they'd be like, I'm not sure do anything that guy's doing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, the the fitness component, I, I continue to do because it helps me sleep. Right. You know, um, if my brain is not exhausted, my body's not exhausted, my brain won't be exhausted. If my brain's not exhausted, then it ends up wandering those places that I don't like. And, you know, yes, nightmares are real. Um, recurring dreams are real. You know, near misses are real. Whether it's, you know, like I, I went to Hurricane Katrina. You know, I, I had dreams of floods for a good decade after that. You know, um, the, the recurring dream of, of missing that guy, you know, that I talked of earlier, um, that happens, you know, um, there's one girl that talks to me in my sleep that I remember that, you know, she'd been hit head on by her. She was riding, she was drunk, riding a bird scooter down an on-ramp for the freeway and the car was going freeway speed up the on-ramp and she came through the windshield and, you know, destroyed her head and face. And then, you know, the people that were shocked with the girl that came through the windshield slammed on the brakes and they threw her off and she flew a hundred yards. And I was the first person to talk, touch her and talk to her. And that girl talks to me in my sleep. Yeah. It was like, it's one of those vivid, you know, imprints in your head that doesn't go away. And, and I'm not unique in that, you know, I'm sure you have it. I'm sure everyone that's going to listen to this has those things that are so personal that happen. They don't really talk about it. And those things come back and they come back to you in your sleep. And if I'm, if I'm not, if I don't wear my ass out, um, you know, I'm, I don't want to drink to sleep anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to wear my ass out by working out. So that's what I do. So I, I know you're getting ready to step away from this job, basically 18 months left, correct? Yep. And, uh, you know, that, that, that aside, where are you today? How are you feeling about yourself today? Mentally, I'm good. Mentally and emotionally, I'm good. Um, I, I've gotten to the work I've done through journaling, counseling, studying my Bible, uh, archery, equine therapy, um, being open about my experiences, uh, cataloging them, processing them, being healthy about it, talking about them, not using alcohol as a negative. Mentally, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think I'm ever a risk for self-destruction again. I think I've found what works. Uh, physically, uh, I'm broken. Uh, I, I've got a lot of injuries, the uh, cumulative traumatic injury that has, I'm an inch shorter than I used to be, whether it's from you know, weight of carrying gear or you know getting hit on the head, being buried by a roof or whatever, I'm, you know, just age, you know, 54. I'm an inch shorter than I used to be, full inch. Um, my joints are messed up. Um, fortunately I don't have any cancer, nothing like that, but the entire right side of my body, uh, every joint has a problem, possibly needs a surgery. 
Um, that's, that's hard to deal with. It's a lot of pain. It's a lot of getting warmed up, a lot of, uh, therapy, a lot of mobility work. Um, I've been using a lot of, uh, coaching to find mobility, to get it back. Fortunately, our wellness program through our city officers, physical therapy and athletic trainers. I've been learning a lot from them, how they, um, things I wish I had known when I was younger to prevent injury or make injuries minor instead of major. Um, and then purpose wise, you know, that whole concept of getting out when it's the only real job you ever did. Mm -hmm. Um, that one's, I'm trying to find the coolness with that. I'm trying to find the, like the, it's not about money. It's about what am I going to do with my time? I'm trying to find the purpose of my time uh, because my profession has dominated my time, uh, getting good at what I do and being involved in, you know, at what I see, uh, what I believe to be the highest level of the fire service and, and getting really good at it, teaching that to others. When that's gone, I'm going to have to find a replacement for that. And I'm not sure I equate it this way, you know, like, um, someone asked me all the time, it's like, I feel like I'm getting out of prison. Yeah. You know, I feel like, I, I feel like, you know, I, I, you know, like that guy coming out of, uh, Shawshank redemption, <laughs> you know, he spent his whole adult life in prison and right. he gets out. Um, I don't plan on hanging myself in a barn and leaving. Yeah. Note, yeah let's I not just, do that. I, no, I just gotta, I gotta find a, uh, I gotta find the, the success in it, you know? And, you know, fortunately I have four kids. Uh, one of them will still be at home with me when I finish. Um, but, uh, you know, enjoying their lives and, and seeing them succeed. My oldest son's graduating uh, from college this year. He's my, uh, and, uh, he, he's, he's, uh, on the SMU football team. We go out and watch games out there in Dallas nice. often. And then my daughter has already chosen this profession, basically, you know, the lifeguards in San Diego are part of the fire department. Okay. That's, that's what she's chosen to do. And then I have two younger boys, one that's a junior in high school and one that's in eighth grade right now. And I think I just want to try to be present for them and, and, uh, be the best dad and husband I can be, give them a solid foundation of showing them what a healthy relationship with a woman looks like and a marriage that lasts and build that success story for them. So back to some of the meat of the, of the discussion, how do you think you're going to replace the chaos? I think I'm going to have to be okay without it. Yeah. But, but I am trying to get in really good shape. Like I said earlier, I think the animal that I'm going to try to put into the equation is I want to learn, learn how to Western bow hunt. Okay. Um, and that's, that's going to be my purpose for staying in shape. Yeah. And, uh, you know, cause you cannot get to where those animals are without being a no. good athlete. No. And I think, uh, I think everything I've heard so far is getting close to one of those animals, whether it be elk or deer and they're in the rut and you just have a bow and it's you and them, but, uh, I've heard it's an amazing rush. Hopefully I get an opportunity to do that. I'm, I'm training to keep myself able to do it. 
uh, running lots of elevation, lifting a lot of weights still, uh, shooting my bow, you know, making sure I'm good at that. But as far as how to do it, man, I'm, I'm anywhere FUD right now. I, I just, I, you know, if, if you, if you ask me how I'm going to hunt an elk, I, I couldn't tell you. Right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to find a way to get someone to teach me that part. Right. And I am act, actively looking for someone to teach me that. Very cool. I forgot to ask you one of my questions at the beginning of this, the show and, and I kick myself when I forget, what's the last song you listened to? Oh man. You know, it's the last song I listened to and that this is going to be either Jamie Johnson. Okay. High cross of living. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great song. I was just in my gym and I was living that and, and uh, it, it rang true with me, you know, cause the words are, um, you know, the high cost of living ain't nothing like the cost of living high. Right. It, and it touch that, that sounds so orchestrated between you asking that question and me having listened to that song and saying that and tying everything into what I just said about substance abuse and PTSD. And by the way, I refuse to put the D on the end of it. That's society put the depression and dysfunction on there. Um, years ago, I started writing it and actually one of my posts calls it G growth, the growth post-traumatic stress growth. It's funny you and, say that. Uh, Cause I just recorded with, I don't know if you've heard of tip of the spear leadership. Um, and, I have. All right. Yeah. So Mike and I just recorded before we got on and I was a guest on his show and, and I, and I talked about PTSD and, and how I, I actually think it's overused as a term in the, in the fire service, because I, I don't think we all have PTSD from what we've seen. We, there is, there's stress and it's been traumatic for a lot of people, but the disorder part, I don't think is true for most people, but I think growth can be true for everybody. Yeah. You have to choose the growth. Right. You have, you have to, you have to choose it. Right. And, and uh, you have to recognize that. Well, I mean, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of self-assessment and realization, but if you're, if you're exposed to this stuff, uh, and if you're, if you're going to be in these trades, you're going to be exposed. Right. You know, you have to, you have to choose how you're going to address it. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of like, I, I equate it to tattoos on the soul, man. They like, like a lot of the youth nowadays and a lot of our professions, they all wear tattoos on the outside. My tattoos are all on the inside. Like there's, there's a, there's a gnarly story on the inside of my skin. Um, yeah. What was the quote? I, what I, was the quote you gave me when we first talked? And I've got it written down. I'm going to see if you remember what you said. Honestly, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know if it was a quote or something that just. I think it was something that flew out of your mouth. Let me see if I can find it. I know. Oh man, this is going to bug me. Cause I wrote it down. Cause I was like, yeah, we're going to, oh, where is it? There it is. You said they're dirty. They're dangerous. They're personal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I kind of remember saying that and you were, that is, you were talking about your son and a tattoo and he asked you about him. Are you going to get a tattoo? And you said to him, my tattoos are on the inside. And they're dirty, they're dangerous, they're personal. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and I wrote it down. It's it I put it on the phone right there just because it's like, man, that's that <laughs> that's it right there. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. They nobody wants to see mine. And um I don't want I don't want to expose them. Yeah. They're there. They'll never go away. That put that that and, and I think that's something that people need to understand. Um everything we talked about today 
the things we carry. I just want everybody to understand they will never go away. No. And that's where that, that's where that part of what I said about the dirty, the dangerous, and their personal. Those things that you carry will never go away. They're part of you. You have to choose what you're going to allow them to do to you. Are you going to choose to grow or are you going to choose to just spiral out of control in your dysfunction? Yeah. You know, and that's, and, and that's the truth of it. And, and, um, I chose to survive. I chose to grow and, and I hope everyone out there listening, they make the same choice. Well, let's get to my last two questions. Cause I think that's a perfect yeah. spot. All right. Okay. We've been, you've been saying it all through and, and, and I think you've said it more than I say it most times throughout day-to-day life, the things we all carry and, and, and it's, it's, it's personal. It's, we do, we have all these things we carry. We carry, we carry those irons into a fire. We carry the tick into a fire, but we carry the shit out of a fire, especially you talking about, you know, the search that you, that you, that you beat yourself up for, you know, you carry that out. So we all have in our everyday lives an everyday carry. What's something you have on you that, that if you leave home without it, you're naked? Oh, well, I think just like anyone else, as much as I wanted, I told hmm. about wanting to throw the phone away and disappear right. the phone. Yeah. Um, I'm lost without uh, uh, my phone. Uh, it, it Bluetooths into my car. Uh, my, daily, my daily Bible reading is normally uh, played while I'm driving. I'm very routine on that. So um, if I don't have my phone to listen to my my uh, daily Bible reading or my music for listening out or logging my workouts, because if I didn't log it, it didn't happen. Right. Yeah. Then uh, I, f- I feel pretty lost without it. So what do you read? Of course, you know, I, that, that, that ties into this. Too. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, the AirPods. They're right beside me. So. <laughs> uh, so what are you reading these days? What's a, what's a, uh, what's a book you want to recommend? Oh, uh, gosh, so many, um, like, cause I, I've been, I've been focusing on trying to read a, a book that I recommend. Um, well, I'm, I'm just going to say, uh, the, the last book I finished, um, was the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Okay. Um, and it's the argument of did Jesus exist? Was he truly the Messiah? And was he actually resurrected and the son of God? And the evidence is all broken down in there. I'm a big Christian. I believe in that. Um, additionally, the other one I'm reading right now is, and it's a little late in my life because my kids are, like I said earlier, 23, 20, 17, 13, uh, the intentional father. Um, and I'm reading that right now, spending 15 minutes a day trying to read that. And, um, it's more of a disciplined book, more on myself, my relationship with my dad, how my relationship with my dad impacted me and how I make sure that I end the, the lessons of what I learned of how to be a dad and don't push them back on, on, onto the next generation. And I think that's important for all of us that are men and leaders that like to one, realize that our dads were kids once too, and right. just because just because they became our dad does not mean they actually grew up. And in my dad's case, his dad died when he was still a teenager. So he didn't have that, that being taught how to be a father by his father. 
that didn't happen. So that, that led to a lot of dysfunction that got pushed into my life that, that I do not want to push onto my kids. And then, uh, for entertainment purposes, uh, man, I'm a huge Jack Carr fan. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, uh, I, I just, uh, because I, I treated myself as a reward for finishing some difficult books, just got the last Jack Carr novel delivered to me All right. this, this week. And, uh, I enjoy that whole, uh, the whole series, the whole terminalist series yeah. of, his, of his writing style. It's really good. Yeah. It's, so that's, it's fun. That's, that's, that's definitely a little bit of brain candy, but it's fast. It's fun to read. Yeah. 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 It's well, well written. It reminds me a lot of, uh, my childhood. I used to, you know, when I was a kid, when I could read a lot of books, I, I read a lot of, uh, uh the, uh, Mac Bowen books, mm -hmm. you know, is that, you know, he was like the, and, and there's a lot of carryover, uh, apparently I, I don't know Jack Carr. I would love to meet him, but apparently he read a lot of those Mac Bowen books as well. I got you. And, and, uh, and he was a big fan of Magnum PI. He, he, <laughs> he crosses Magnum PI into it, which, you know, our generation, Magnum PI was the coolest. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All dudes, right. <laughs> All of us wanted to wear the short shorts and the, uh, and the flowered shirts, of course, as we got older, we realized short shorts don't look that good. No, no, no. You got to do a lot of leg workouts to make them look good. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, man, I appreciate it. This conversation has been fantastic. Uh, it, it really has. It's been good on my end. Um, I feel like I had to readdress some things and get some things out again and, you know, just stay on top of that, of that routine maintenance, you know, draining the glass, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. It was, it was a good one. I, I do appreciate, I appreciate the openness and honesty and the willingness to come on. You bet. Hopefully I can help somebody. And, and if anyone needs to ever talk, you know, or just have someone to listen, that's uh, been down that road. I'm more than willing to listen to people. Awesome. Tell people where they can find you on Instagram. Well, uh, the, the page that we were talking about is tier one athletes, T I E R underscore one underscore athletes. That's still the name of it. Um, it has a sister page attached to it, Tier One Talks. That was the podcast that I ran. Um, hasn't published an episode in a year or so. And then if you find those uh, pages, you're going to find that it's also connected to other stuff. Uh, I, I run the Instagram page for our uh, company, Fire Company, uh, Rescue Two, SDFD underscore, Rescue underscore Two. And you can see a lot of the good work we do. Um, and a lot of the tributes to the people that we've lost along the way. And uh, just, it's an amazing team, amazing job. Um, a lot of great individuals there. I, I have a ton of great teammates around me that really make, uh, keep San Diego safe. Cool, we'll get people to check out your stuff, man. And we're gonna, I'll sign off and, and, and stop this recording and uh, just hang on one second, all right? Cool. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves, and remember to check in on each other.